the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, uh, this is Jerry Boyer. I want to thank you for joining us today. I've really been looking forward to this interview for some time because I've been a reader of Oz Guinness for decades. And when I heard that there was a new edition of The Dust of Death coming out, which I think was his first major work, mm-hmm. I was excited. And then when InterVarsity Press told me, hold on, there's a new book coming out, The Magna Carta of Humanity, which is applying the book of Exodus and the events of Sinai to our modern cultural and political situation, then I knew I wanted to get to this as soon as possible. Now, when you interview people, usually people hold up the book. I, I'm a Kindle person, so here's our cover, Magna Carta of Humanity, but um, it will shortly be available in both Kindle um, also in hard copy. So, Oz Guinness, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jerry. A real privilege. It's a privilege to have you. You say, in, let's start off with the dust of death. We're going to kind of go in chronological order. You say in the dust of death um, that you had one significant change from when you wrote it, which is when you wrote it, there was a kind of push towards a third way uh, between the counterculture revolution and the establishment. Um, and that in your current more mature thinking, you would not be so inclined to pursue a third way. So I'm asking, one, why did well, you go third way in the first place? And two, what caused you to kind of rethink that? Well, I went a third way in the first place because the early church was called a third race. They were so distinctively different. Now, I use that picture, but the trouble is President Clinton and others have ruined it with their notion of triangulation. In other words, look at the two extremes, split it in half, and that's your way forward. And that's not what I mean at all. We need a distinctively Christian approach to it, but I wouldn't today call it a third way. Clearly in this country, America, no independent party has succeeded. So we're left with Democrats and Republicans, and we've got to make up our mind in terms of the characters and the policies and the situation and so on. So the third way notion, not the strongest, but the idea of the 60s, absolutely essential to understanding where we are today. So the seeds that are planted in the 60s, the, the radicals of the 60s are essentially the establishment of now in some ways. So we're seeing almost like the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares are now a good deal more mature than they were when you wrote The Dust of Death. Well, I came here in 68. A hundred American cities were ablaze. Mm. Martin Luther King, of course, assassinated in April, and then Bobby Kennedy in July. But the radicals realized, and here's the significance, that they wouldn't win in the streets. So they called for Herbert Marcuse and Rudy Deutschko and others for a long march through the institutions. In other words, win the high schools and the colleges and universities, 
win the press and the media, win Hollywood and entertainment, and then you've won the cultural gatekeepers and you can win the whole thing. And clearly 50 odd years later, they've done it. They're the establishment now. Exactly. Right. So they can take to the streets or not because most of the establishment won't actually do anything if they take to the streets and burn down a city because they're, they're, they're kind of the upstarts and they're also the guardians at the same time. That's right. I put it like this today in three words, revolution, oligarchy, or homecoming. Hmm. Revolution is this radical left that we've seen in Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, and so on. Oligarchy, you can see the traditional establishment, some Republicans, almost all Democrats, they are now the ruling class. Hmm. And so traditional views of freedom have been hollowed out. So the difference between the left and liberalism is diminishing. So when you see a consolidation, politics, bureaucratic state, academia, the media, woke business, mm. and then the high tech, you have something very dangerous, one party politics. And, and that's at, increasingly what we're seeing. At that time, we saw the emergence of neoconservatives who were, in essence, liberals who just didn't move, right? Um, or, or liberals who were mugged by reality, you know, Ben Wattenberg and you know, Norm, uh, Crystal, Irvin Crystal, et cetera, they didn't really shift a lot. They just saw the liberal movement go crazy and they kind of stayed in the same place. And uh, we're seeing the same thing now with that this whole world around the free speech liberals and everyone from J.K. Rowling to Jordan Peterson and, to, um, you know, various comedians who are essentially liberals, but they're on conservative talk shows all the time talking about the problems with the intolerance of cancel culture. So that seems to be sort of another parallel to the time you're talking about. Do you agree? Yep. Oh, yes. Although the three basic political rights, religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, have each of them been undermined, especially in the last year, in various ways. So this is an incredibly important moment for the American experiment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When I read uh, the new introduction to The Dust of Death, I had a certain reaction that was sort of like, oh, oh, no. Um, um, and now that you've explained that um, uh, your reasoning a little bit more, I don't feel that way anymore, which is the idea of getting away from a third way. Um, as um, the, I mean, the way you're explaining it is the phrase the third way is really associated with with the welfare state and quasi-liberalism 
you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to full out socialism. Third way is, you know, is kind of mindless and not really thought through. But um, Christianity is in some ways a third way. And at this particular moment, let me, tell, tell, let me find out from you if you kind of feel the same way. I'm really lamenting the ways in which evangelical Christianity, my tribe, is kind of fusing so much into the Republican Party, populism, the Trump movement, where it's hard to make a distinction anymore between the distinctive Christian worldview and its political partnership, say, with nationalism or conservatism or patriotism. Um, I mean, are you feeling the same thing or do you think my, my reaction is overwrought? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. No, clearly those happened. On the other hand, the other extreme is equally bad, if not worse, because the left is a far greater danger than the right, although the establishment is now playing up the danger of the right as domestic terrorism and so on, mm -hmm. which I think is actually wrong. No, but what you said is exactly right. And we need people who think much more distinctively as Christians. Now, my new book, Magna Carta of Humanity, yes. shows how Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Torah, they are the key to understanding America's beginnings, the American Revolution at its best. But they're also, I think, if we rediscover them, the key to going forward for humanity. Because hmm. clearly, how do we... How do we create societies that do justice to freedom and human dignity and justice itself and so on? Well, there's complete confusion now. You know Nebo's idea, we're caught between authoritarianism, order with no freedom, and anarchy, which is freedom with no order. Right. And the biblical way is between those, a view of ordered freedom, and that's what's broken down. And we need, at the national level, I say we, I'm an admirer of this country, I'm not American. At the national level, we need a Lincoln. Hmm. Lincoln addressed the evil of slavery and called for a new birth of freedom in light of what he called the better angel of the American nature in the Declaration. Hmm. No one does that now. So the president, make America great again, or Joe Biden's restore the soul of America, they never say what made America great in the first place. Yes. And that, of course, comes from the Reformation and goes back to the Hebrew Scriptures. So let's, let's kind of go back to this idea of these different groups that are kind of out of alignment, the left and the, and the right. In some sense, the left is worse because they're worse, right? I mean, the ideological deviation from the Christian worldview is more severe. But in some sense, the right is worse because the right is us and the right is right. So if even we don't get it right, I mean, even if we're, if we, we're, we're culturally weak, but we're the kind of guardians of the truth. So if we don't get it right, it's like God and Abraham negotiating with another. If you don't have 10 righteous, uh, you know, then can you get anywhere? So it seems almost to me more imperative for us to get ourselves better grounded than it is for us to point out what's wrong with the left, although pointing out what's wrong with the left is certainly legitimate. But since we're the solution, it's almost more incumbent upon us to get the solution right. You agree with that? Disagree? What do you think? I agree with that. you totally that we need reformation yes. and revival 
in the church. Yes. I often say the scandal of the American church, if you look at the Western world, in almost all countries, Christians and certainly evangelicals are a tiny minority today. Here, we're a huge majority. And the scandal is we're called to be salt and light. We should be affecting the culture, Christianly. But you have tiny groups, like, say, our friends, the Jews, Mm -hmm. 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight, intellectually, financially, all sorts of areas. So shame on us. So we need revival and reformation in our circles. But I don't think the right is us, as you said. Mm -hmm. A lot of Christians have supported it, not able to articulate why. In other words, I think at best they saw the great disruptor, President Trump, as a wrecking ball that stopped the left in its tracks. And instinctively, they thought that was the one to back. Now they should have said, Mr. President, your language and rhetoric Hmm. is disastrous. There's no love of the enemy, let alone respect for truth and the enemy. So in the Old Testament, evil speech is tantamount to murder for the rabbis. Yes. And we should have confronted him on that or, you know, his loose reality in terms of truth and lies and so on. Now, that's pretty widely shared. Take some of the Democratic congressmen who lied through their teeth repeatedly. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say the right is us. And now you're going to see a whole lot of, say, the evangelical college professors coming out of the woodwork saying we're on Biden's side, naively. Yes. But we've got to think Christianly and critically. Yes. There's a plumb line, mm-hmm. right? And the plumb line is the revelation of Scripture embodied Absolutely. in the life of Jesus. Absolutely. You write about um, maybe my favorite modern thinker, Rene Girard, the late Rene Girard. Um, in in this book, uh, the Magna Carta of Humanity, and Gerard talks a lot about how we, what Gerard says is we imitate, not our friends. We imitate our enemies. We, the more we are in conflict with our enemies, the more there becomes a symmetry. We become more like the people we're fighting against. The more we fight against them, and the more we hate them and obsess over them the more like we become. We perceive ourselves as being more different, um, but we're actually tactically, in essence, kind of a mirror image of them. Do you agree mm-hmm. with Gerard's analysis? And do, do we see that playing out before our eyes now? I love you know, his other idea of the mimetic desire, that we desire what others desire. Now, a long time ago, David Reisman talked about we're now in the other-directed world. And you think of you know, the crowds and the consensus and polling. Americans have gone crazy about polling and statistics, whereas you look in the Bible, demography and censuses and so on, the Lord judges them. We've got a lot of hard thinking to do. So I I think Girard is is incredibly close to the bone. Hmm. I personally was afraid. I had it in my previous book, um, which an editor cut out, that what I feared was that Girard's style, you'd have all this coming together, leading to an assassination, mm. and that was the scapegoating. And I personally think, as we look at Nancy Pelosi, the furies are in the air, put it in the Greek term. Mm. In other words, you've got the vengefulness 
of scapegoating in a disastrous way, but simply another word for hatred. It is. No? Um, Matt Lafarge right. is knitting again in front of the guillotine. She is. In fact, a little aside, my wife is active in the knitting community. And about a year and a half ago, there was a, a wild purge of all things Trump in the knitting community. Um, and we were reminded of Madame Lafarge knitting away her list of enemies. Um, there were, you couldn't put any knitting pattern on the web which said anything positive about Trump. You could say F Trump, but you couldn't say MAGA. So this, uh, so, so the fates are knitting away with their vengeance. I'm curious, which book are you referring to? Is it Carpe Diem, Redeemed, or which book was that edited out of? Last Call for Liberty. Last Call for Liberty. Now, the, the last Gerard book, Battling to the End, he argues that we can't scapegoat anymore because we're just Christian enough to not allow the scapegoat mechanism. You know, we side with the victim, but we're not Christian enough to forgive so that we have this just escalating attempt to scapegoat one another that never actually leads to a scapegoating mechanism and the at least illusion of unity that comes from that. So that was kind of interesting to see you know, where Gerard landed on that. I haven't read that particular book, but you know, you've probably read Douglas Murray, The Madness of Crowds. And that's one of the points he makes as a conservative atheist and a gay. Mm -hmm. He points out that the left has zero mercy. And I, I love his perceptiveness because clearly one of the great things of the gospel when we address injustice is forgiveness. And forgiveness is all about freedom. The past, the guilt is gone. The future, the ball and chain, gone. You have a second chance. So, you know, we truly are the people of freedom in every way, and I love that. But my general point is time for Christians to get off the back foot. If we see what the Scripture teaches, and above all in the gospel, we should be on the front foot. We have the truths. Right which are the deepest justice, the deepest freedom, the deepest view of human dignity. And we should be going out there and persuading them. That's what I hope my new book is about, shifting to the front foot and sounding positive. The Magna Carta of humanity. The, the, yeah. the, the, all right. Um, so there's a couple of things going on there, um, but I want to stick with your metaphor for a moment, back foot, Christians on the back foot. Let me narrow that down a little bit. Let's say evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Right. Not to leave my Catholic friends out of it forever, but just for a moment, you know, uh, Robbie George and others can sort of step aside because I'm not sure that they are intellectually underperforming in the same way that evangelicals are intellectually underperforming our demographic strength. So the question is, I mean, there's a real heritage, you know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli on through the Reformed Orthodoxy, uh, that, that you've got the von Prinsterer and Dojaveerd and Van Til, and you've got other traditions in the Anglo world. There's a real uh, 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 Richard Hooker. There's a real Grotius. Um, you, there's a powerful Protestant intellectual heritage that I, can, I can't find out there anymore, except in little out-of-the-way corners in your books or some others, but not as a significant cultural force. So what, what's the problem? Why are we on the back foot when we have so much for, we, we have so much to put in our boxing gloves um, in terms of heft? 
Well, I think a lot of people responded to the problem you've described well, say, uh, read Mark Knoll's book and so on. They were out to prove themselves to the secular academy. Mm. And then many of them became more like the secular academy out of a desire for intellectual respectability. In other words, they lost the distinctive Christian and biblical edge. So you take the things you mentioned and the American Revolution. You know, ideas like the way the covenant became constitution mm. and all of that meant in depth. We have the keys to many of the problems politically today in our tradition. Now, let's be clear. I love Robbie George, too, and my Catholic friends, mm -hmm. true brothers. But it wasn't the Catholic tradition which made the American experiment. You know, 95% or whatever of those who did it were Protestant. It wasn't just numerical, though. It was the ideas, freely chosen consent, right. separation of powers. You've gone down the line. They are Old Testament ideas rediscovered by the Reformation. So you have wonderful Jewish voices like Rabbi Sachs, who points out that it was the coming together of the Reformation with the printing press, which created the rediscovery of the Hebrew Republic. right. And that contributed to the American Revolution at its best. Now, as you know well, our younger evangelicals can only see the hypocrisy of slavery, mm. the contradiction of the best, and they can't get beyond that, mm. which is odd. I mean, we as Christians know God created humans good in his image, and then the fall. And so you distinguish creation and fall, but they don't do that with America. We're just fallen. Uh, we're just we're born fallen in their in their theology, right? That's the sixteen nineteen project, hmm. or the Howard Zinn view of America. And I, I've talked to on Zoom this year with many pastors, particularly out in the West Coast, who quite simply have drunk the Kool Aid. They'd never read cultural Marxism, but you'd think they had. And they're I see. So are, you're you're talking to pastors who have drunk the Kool Aid of cultural Marxism, yeah. Gramsci, um, you mentioned Marcusa, um, Adorno. We could throw him the Frankfurt School. Yeah, um, the whole Frankfurt School. The whole stuff. This is this. These are that's my teenage diet, right? As a teenager, that's what I was reading. That's what I was. Um, and then someone gave me some C.S. Lewis, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And then that led to some Thomas Aquinas, and I thought, that's interesting, but it doesn't quite do it for me. And then someone handed me Cornelius Van Til, and I thought, okay, I get it now. Mm -hmm. Not all, These critical theorists always criticize everything else, but they never turn their critical theory on their own foundations. Yeah. They, they alone are not acting out of instinct or self-interest. They alone are in, incorruptible and to be and beyond judgment. And once that happened, then I, I couldn't be a critical theorist anymore. Uh, but you're, you're saying that this is coming into evangelicalism, like megachurch evangelicalism, maybe particularly on the left coast, but maybe it's more of an urban thing. Um, I don't mean urban ethnic, I mean urban city. So tell me more about that, if you would. Well, you, you visit, a friend phoned me, said his daughter at Wheaton, the very first seminar was some sort of a discovery thing to show how much white privilege she was suffering from. We the very first seminar. Right. This is not Art Holmes and thinking Christianly or Mark Knoll and thinking Christianly. This is Wheaton. And that's just one example. I meet it all over the place. And there are some colleges 
that have remained crystal clear and are determined to think Christianly. You take Grove City College and places like that. Yes. Others have, uh, they've gone. Wheaton, Calvin, would Calvin be on that list? I haven't been to Calvin for quite a while. You may know better than I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Eastern, St. David's. Um, Messiah. <laughs> pardon me? Messiah. Yes. So did that happen because they wanted so much, they hankered so much for the approval of the academy, or did that happen because nobody gave them anything else? As a, we're, to, we're all talking about vaccinations now. Well, a true, deep biblical, a Hebraic worldview to me is the vaccination against wokeism because it accounts for all of the human reality. Uh, yeah. So, was it mostly that the vacuum that we left behind, or is it mostly hankering for approval, or just maybe a combination of those things? Probably a combination. I mean, you'd have to know individual people to know. Um, you know that if you look at the popular level of evangelicals, seeker-sensitive, audience-driven, the lure and idol of relevance, well, that's a much subtler thing in the academy, but it's still there. You want to be respectable in the eyes of the leading scholars, etc. Well, that's tough. I mean, I made personally a decision after my DPhil at Oxford not to go into the academy and that was one of the reasons, because it was so difficult. You were confined to one discipline. You couldn't think Christianly about anything and everything. Uh, but one of them was you were constantly having to prove yourself respectable in the light of certain people. And I want to try and think before the Lord and take these people very seriously, but they're not my North Star. Hmm. So if you, so, we're talking about the sort of the drifting now, not just of the elite of the culture, but the elite of the church who are, yeah. let's go back to Gerard. They are memetically entangled with de deconstructionism and Marxism and Freudianism. They, they are imitating the, the culture um, and, and sort of hankering after that. Now, then you have the grassroots. So mm -hmm. I you know, I'm in the world of radio and I edit websites and I see comment sections. And what I see at the grassroots level is a lot of hyper-nationalism, a lot of toxic anger, um, a, a lot of, you mentioned Lincoln, a lot of neo-Confederate type stuff, a lot of wrapping the, 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 the um, putting the flag around the cross, um, the sort of thing that we saw on January 6th, this kind of weird mix, Trump shofars, this weird mix of civil religion and, and religious iconography that seems to me to be also a pretty big problem. I mean, I, do you see that? Or am I seeing more of it just because of where I am? Or what, well, what, no, what do you I, see? Listen, I live in Washington. I personally don't think January the 6th was all that. A lot of good, I wasn't there, but a lot of good people were there mm -hmm. whom you would greatly admire, but you needn't go into that. Put it this way. If you see what I call the establishment going to one-party politics, Call it the ruling class. Call it the elite. What you're describing is a populist instinctive revolt against it. Yes. And I think it's understandable. I mean, you've got George Soros globalism. So the populist response is a nationalism. Yes. Now, I think I could give it, you probably could too, an articulate description of that, why you've got to balance the global and the, and the local and the national. But 
They don't have that. Or put another way, the trouble is these people don't have leaders. They are like our Lord had heart for people who are sheep without a shepherd. Yes. You know, America needs a leader, but populists need leaders. And it's not just people who cater to them. Yes. That's in the trouble, but people who I you know, I I I I am surrounded by pro Trumpers and never Trumpers. <laughs> you take the leading never Trumpers in the evangelical circles, you know, some of them are my friends. We won't mention names. Right. Let's leave names out. My complaint is, whether pro or con, Trump has so obsessed people that they don't look at the State of the Union reality. And underneath this obsession, America's going to the dogs. Yes, it's a dual obsession. There's an obsession with hating him, and there's an obsession with him as some kind of political savior. No politician deserves that much of our brain space. Not at all. But who's put the alternative? I've actually spoken to some of the leading people who are Christians, pretty high up in the Senate or whatever, and said, will you be the Lincoln? They all look to someone else. Well, they're afraid, right? Sheep need shepherds. Yes. Our Lord cared for them. So I don't despise the populace. I disagree with them. Well, I don't despise either of them. Right. I mean, everybody's uh, it's the all understandable. The, I'm sorry. The ruling go ahead. class are the danger. The That's, ruling class are the real danger. They're the elite. This is a, this is not democracy. It's the end of democracy, free speech, a lot of other things. This is an oligarchy. I think I think that's sorry, I, I interrupted you. Oh, I, I think that's where we differ because and and you're more experienced than I am. So your intuitions are probably better than mine, but I see a dual danger, um, and that the the oligarchy. What, how did you say it? There's an instinctual reaction to yeah. the oligarchy, and the so it's not and a it's, thoughtful reaction. It's no, instinctual, and it's wrong. And no, instincts I'm, can run wild. So yeah. downstream, go ahead. I'm sorry. Still, downstream, the greater danger is the oligarchy. Hmm. They have the power. What power center? What power center do the populists have? Fox News, talk radio. That's um, one among a talk radio. You're right. Absolutely. I'm a conservative. We absolutely dominate talk radio. And they haven't uh, been driven out of the internet. But the the high schools, the academy, the high tech media go across the board. Increase. You know, when I first came to this country as a visitor, you would say business was conservative. Yes. No longer. Right. No longer. Well, I think of the Spanish. They don't have many of the high points of culture. That's why in the long run, and you can see the Biden administration now talking about domestic terrorism. They're kind of, I agree with Dennis Prager. They're kind of using the Capitol riots. Of course they are. Rather like the Nazis used the Reichstag fire. Right. The difference being that there really was something, <laughs> uh, you know, the Reichstag fire was was a false flag operation, probably. And this one, um, I would be highly skeptical, was something that the Democrats did in order to justify no, this. No, no, no. Right, They're right. using it. They're using it. Right. So it's parallel to the Reichstag fire in that way. But listen, I read enough comment sections to know that there are a whole lot of us who think that they did it to blame us. Um, And so I'm I'm not sure we agree, but we don't have to agree. 
on whether one is really overwhelmingly the greater danger. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, <laughs> we can differ. I, I have no doubt. I follow people like Angelo Cotevilla and people like that. Yeah. I have no doubt the oligarchy is by far the greatest danger long-term. Above all, because it's explicitly against the American Revolution. Now, the populists overrun aspects of the revolution, and they're much out of it, but they're not explicitly against it. This is why I think America needs lead. Who can articulate what the revolution was and what are the distinctive features that need recovering today? Hmm. I, who's doing it? No one. Yes, I, I, I'm painfully aware of that. Here's an analogy. We have COVID and we have vaccines. What if somebody disabled the vaccine? What if somebody put a vaccine out there that wasn't the real thing? What's the greater danger, COVID or a fake vaccine? It's, they're, they're both dangerous. So if we are, if we, the Christian community or the conservatives are the vaccine, if we're the immune system and we break down, become distorted, um, then seems to me that we, that is every bit as much of a danger, if not more so than a corrupt ruling class. But remember, Jerry, we started by saying evangelicalism needs revival and reformation. Yes. No question. But take some of the, you know, Rabbi Sachs's idea, people talk about climate change. The real problem is cultural climate change. Yes. Take one aspect, the crisis of truth, reality, objective knowledge, and moral knowledge. You know, I think fake news is a real problem. It is. I think conspiracy theories like QAnon are a real problem. Mm -hmm. But the intellectuals, postmodernists and deconstruction, have so undermined truth. All we're left with is power, suspicion, skepticism. America's finished if this goes. Our Lord was right. Yes. You know, the truth and the truth sets you free. America cannot sustain truth with its current views of uh, freedom, with its current views of truth. Right. And the, the contrary of the truth will set you free is that lies enslave you. Of course. That would be Absolutely. the inverse. Right. The culture of lies hmm. and suspicion and skepticism. But, it, 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 you know, the, the elite say, look at those dreadful conspiracy theories. And you and I agree with them. Mm -hmm. And the people say, look at those dreadful fake news. And I agree with them. There's a crisis of truth. Yes. Freedom in America is impossible. But again, who can get up and say that? Well, that's the question, isn't it? You're saying it. Um, no, no, I'm squeak. You're 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 not a senator or a presidential candidate, right? So I think one of the things is that that it seems like in some sense only the loudest can get through the din. So that the few people who are going to like hold up that that exodus image, that plumb line image, that truth image that, you know, Veritas, Emmet, um, Emmet, Hebrew, uh, Aletheia, right? That, that idea there, they exist, but they don't have the podium for the most part. But if you look at American history, is it not right? And you know, you're American. I'm not, it usually comes to someone very high politically, like a Senator or vice president or president, or a charismatic figure with a small C 
secular charismatic, like a Martin Luther King or someone like that. At the moment, there's no one. Hmm. I pray daily for such a leader. My wife and I pray literally daily. Do you know the Derek Prince prayer? Lord, set over us a leader such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through him or her. Amen. Now, we turn it in the plural. We pray that prayer daily. And I, uh, you know, I, I literally, with a round table on Capitol Hill with about 10 congressmen two years ago now, I mentioned, I told the story of Derek Prince, the background of that, and said, now, which of you will be the Derek Prince? I mean, the, the, the Lincoln. And they all began just looking around at others. Nobody steps forward. Now, the trouble with many of them, they don't know history. You've got to know enough history to know what we're talking about. Yes. In other words, the presidents make America great again. That was a fallacy because it wasn't the military and it wasn't the economy which made America. It was ideas. Right. But who can articulate them? Right. So I know I'm on this again and again. Maybe it's just my own obsession here. But I agree with you. Ideas. We hold these truths. It's right there. Right up there on my wall. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, can't put a lien on them, rights, among which are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. There's no ethnic component to that. There's no, there's not even really a territorial component. To some degree, that is a reaction to what one might call blood and soil conservatism. Um, and the idea that America is essentially a soft, a software that can run on all the hardware of humanity. And I feel increasingly like um, our group is sort of drifting in reacting to the left. It's drifting towards throne altar, blood soil um, kind of conservatism, as opposed to ideas, the novus order seclorum, the new order of the ages is we're going to build a nation on ideas, not ethnicity, not nostalgia, not a particular patch of land, but ideas. Um, and I feel like conservatism is in danger of losing that idea focus and, uh, and moving back towards more a blood and soil identity focus. No. Am I wrong to fear that? I think you're right. But then we've got to go back to the roots of those things, which is the Sinai Revolution. But I'd yes. add one thing to what you're saying, and I agree with you. The more we go the throne and altar type of thing, the more you create the very reaction that in Europe created radical anti-Christian secularism. You know, the French Revolution will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts, the guts of the last, of the last priest. priest. Yes. Now, I thought we never see, no continent has produced secularism like Europe. And the main reason is revulsion against established churches, mm. which were oppressive and corrupt. And the worse we get over here, the Christian right in mid-70s and so on, I've attacked it for 30 years, mm. the more we create the very same European-style secularist reaction. Yes. And, and you can see in the Biden administration, there is more open animosity to faith than we've ever seen in this country. So if we gravitate towards a European-style conservatism, that adds ammunition and revulsion to the European-style leftism as opposed yep. to an American ideas-based conservatism, which it doesn't create necessarily the same revulsion. I mean, the neo-Marxists will always hate that, but it's harder for them to get large swaths of people to hate it 
without that revulsion to blood and soil and throne and altar. Agree? Yes, as long as you say the other side too, Jerry. In other words, the more you have a European-style militantly anti-religious secularism, the more the populists instinctively, without understanding, will drift towards something that's ugly. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I have been accused of being a Christian nationalist. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. You know, I follow the George Orwell difference between nationalism, which is idolizing your nation, right or wrong, and patriotism, which is the love of the place you come from. Mm. And I think a genuine patriotic sense of a nation is very important over against the George Soros borderless walls. Here, here. Uh, he, Trump, you, you know, you had the sanctuary cities mm -hmm. and you had the wall. Mm -hmm. No one talked about citizenship. <laughs> the real thing is citizenship. Mm. You can have all sorts of millions of coming in so long as you educate them, educate them what it is to be American. Mm. You know, Huntington's last book, it's easy to become an American, get your papers, increasingly difficult to know what it is to be American. That's mm. the trouble. So citizenship is a positive ideal. Whereas oh. the, the existing fight is essentially a vote grab by the Democrats. Let's just legalize 20 million people who are here illegally, and then we'll never lose on national election again. And then the right kind of reacts to that, like, oh, we need to deport 20 million people, rather than start to talk about which of these people can actually function as citizens. Right. And how do we expedite that process? Um, and so we split into kind of crazy camps, rather than constructively focus on citizenship. But you became, you had no leaders. I mean, you know, you, this is where the unum, a pluribus unum, went out when civic education was abolished. Right. And if America's brought up on Howard's Inn and 1619 project, the country is finished. You have no transmission. You know, I love, again, the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? He didn't talk about freedom. He didn't talk about the promised land of milk and honey. He didn't talk about the dangers of the wilderness. He talked three times about children. Mm. We are the story we're able to tell to our children and hand on. Well, America at the end of the 60s threw out civic education. Mm. The republic's finished. I mean, it may take 40 years or 50 years, but if you do that, the republic is finished. There's no unum. And the Old Testament ends on Malachi, right? He'll turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. Yep. Re, re, kind of reasserting that obligation to transmit from generation to generation. Now compare that with what I call generationalism. You know the idea. It's a generational thing you wouldn't understand, as if we're all totally different, and the gospel has to be new all over again, and America makes no sense to Generation Z. Mm. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Every generation is a different pulse beat in the story of humanity. And the day you don't pass it on, you're eventually finished, whether it's the faith or freedom. I mean, some things are so simple to see. Maybe it's because I'm an outsider. You know, I grew up in China under totalitarianism, and I've seen so much of the ugliness of European extremes. It's tragic to come here and see America squandering this unique, rich freedom, and it's throwing away in this generation. It is. It's tragic. I, uh, I sometimes teeter on the edge of despair when I see uh, our, our the uh, the missingness 
of the biblical message in the yep. public square. So the the book that we're talking about, the, the newest one, the one about to come out, Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. As I look back over you writing for what, 30, 40 years, um, this, there seems to be something, there's something new with each of your books, but I sense in you a more Hebraic focus, a shift towards a more Hebraic focus than I think I've seen in the other books. Now, I haven't read everything, so maybe that's always been there to this degree, but I think I sense that, and I welcome it if that's the case. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of the Hebrew ideas, the Tanakh, the you know Torah, the Old Testament, Torah is the law, the Pentateuch, and the Tanakh is the whole Old Testament, the importance of that, and have we to some degree lost that as Christians in favor of more of a Hellenic synthesis with Jesus, more Plato than Moses. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I think you get the basic idea. So Absolutely. And I'm with you on that, Jerry, totally. Put it like this, although I have to be careful what I'm saying. You know, when the I got this from the Chinese and from the Jews, this idea. When the church became official under Theodosius, not Constantine, Theodosius in 380, it tended to uncritically copy Greek ideas and Big Roman thing. structures. Yes. To leave aside the Greek ideas for the moment, take the Roman structures. Rome had a Caesar, consuls, senators, etc., and the church had pope, cardinals, bishops, etc., etc. And as Daniel Elazar points out, they were hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And you know the famous saying, all power tends to corrupt and absolute power, etc., that's Lord Acton, a Catholic layman, criticizing his own church. Yes, he was <laughs> arguing against Vatican exactly. I. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, right. But here's the point. When the Reformation came, not immediately under Luther, but increasingly Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, Cromwell, they went to the Old Testament, not Rome. They tried to be biblical, sola scriptura. So the notion of covenant made the notion of constitution. Hmm. So we, to understand ourselves, we have to go back to the Bible. So you can say in some ways I've become more Hebraic, but only because freedom requires an understanding that it was the Hebrew Republic that was the model. Yes. Eric Nelson, I, you're probably familiar with Eric Nelson's book, The Hebrew Republic. I have it on my desk. Isn't it wonderful? I interviewed him um, uh, so there's like a dozen books that all have the same title, the Hebrew Republic. So this Hebraism, so Erasmus rediscovers the Greek New Testament, and we get a sort of a theological reformation, because mm -hmm. we now can look and say that it doesn't say penance, you're saved by penance, it says repentance, right? So Luther can read the Greek and see that there had been some theological, some soteriological distortions. But basically, the social order stuff isn't really shifted that much. And then later, we get Hebrew texts. Jews are fleeing from Spain, etc. And Northern Europe starts to get these Hebrew texts. And they read them in Hebrew, and they start learning Hebrew. And then you get that in the Netherlands. And then William of Orange comes across the channel, right? And then it comes across the Atlantic. So it's really the rediscovery of Hebraism um, by, these by these maybe second or third generation Reformation thinkers that really leads to the freedom of the modern world. Agree? Absolutely, said before William of Orange, Antwerp, 
that's where many of the Jews went, and even the dissidents from England went to Antwerp first, and they were there, had much greater freedom, and that came back to Britain, and that was what hopped the Atlantic. And as you know well, the Mayflower Compact is a covenant. John Winthrop's sermon is a covenant. John Adams says the Constitution of Massachusetts is modeled on a covenant, and so on. So we've got to rediscover our biblical Hebrew roots. Yes, and so I really wonder, I mean, there are all these different groups out there. There's the, the evangelical elites who are, they're basically doing critical theory or Marxism, whether they know they're doing it or not. Okay. And then there's the grassroots. And then there's kind of conservative intellectual elites who basically have it right. But I sort of feel like that maybe there, there's too much syncretism with Hellenic philosophy, which has a natural arc towards central power. Well, you know, from whether Plato or Aristotle both have that. And that maybe we need to kind of go back and rethink even some of the conservative Christian tradition and have a little less Plato and a little more Moses. Um, and, and, and that to some degree, civil religion in America had a little bit of that halfway covenant at the beginning that's played itself out. So now we need more of a full covenant than the halfway covenant is, am I taking that too far for your, no, no, I like it. I like it. Do you know the work of Daniel Elazar? Uh, Yes. He's the one I think who put that covenantal thinking on the map politically. In other words, you had the, the Greek taxonomy, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, etc. And he put in, you know, organic societies, hierarchical societies like Rome, and then covenantal societies. And obviously America and Switzerland and the Jews are all covenantal. Now we've lost that. And all that's left is a bare notion of constitution, which is a very thin law, but so different. So I've got a chapter in my new book on covenantalism and the constitution and we've got to recover the richness of that well even even our word federalism phaedos covenant covenant yeah it's berit you you, you would look at the you look at berit in the old testament and then you look in the vulgate and you get phaedos right it's covenant but if you say the feds in america today there's no covenant it's the national power We've lost that balance, the national and the local, or the global and the local. We've we've lost it. We've got to recover that. So, Well, the feds aren't keeping their covenant. The feds are not well, staying to the limit exactly. of the, li- the power limits implied by the covenant. Exactly. How but dare this, they call themselves feds? You know, where I have a lot of sympathy f- for the populists. I, I, they've gone wrong, badly wrong. And in that sense, they're dangerous but they're reacting against something which needs reacting against. And they need leadership to show where they're right and where they're wrong. Yes. I mean, how many voices, even what we said today, Cherry, uh, I'm delighted at all you said about the Hebrew roots. I haven't discovered that on any Salem radio station. Hmm. Not one. Yes. Or any Christian college I've been at relatively recently. You know, I mean, it's a missing voice. Your voice must get out there. Not just critiquing the crazies, but in leading the better people forward. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm not that interested in critiquing the crazies, except to say, you know what? There's something better. And what's better is the two-thirds of the Bible, which we've tended to ignore, 
Because if we ignore the first two-thirds of the Bible, then we're inevitably, inevitably going to misunderstand the last third of the Bible. Yeah. Jesus answered to rabbi, if we ignore that, we're going to miss a lot. Mm-hmm. Agree with you totally. You know, in John 10, Jesus, what, he's celebrating Hanukkah. You know, he, I mean, he owned that, right? He's at the Festival of Lights at the, uh, at the temple. Okay, so the Magna Carta of Humanity, um, is there some takeaway from that that we haven't talked about yet that you think, you know, people need to hear? Because there's a lot there, and we've only scratched the surface. Well, you know, I've got chapters on constitution and covenant. I've got chapters, we did touch on that, on transmission, mm. incredibly important. I've got chapters on how you deal with wrong. Say you take this summer, last summer, and all the Black Lives Matter and all of that. You know, there's such confusion over that. I meet young evangelicals. You say the word justice, they leap to their feet and salute. Well, of course, every Christian should be passionate about justice. Thank God the Hebrew prophets were the first great voices attacking the abuse of power and inhuman injustice. But the way we do it is diametrically opposed to Black Lives Matter and cultural Marxism. And we cannot afford Christians drinking the Kool-Aid. So can, could we, right, we have to drink the, the wine. Um, we have to drink the sacramental wine, which is much better for you than the Kool-Aid. So to see, the way I think of this is because we didn't share the prophetic message, which is justice applied to an individual and also social mm-hmm. sphere. So it is social justice because we did, we, we made, we shrunk the Bible down to the heart and didn't have a social message that creates a vacuum into which the Marxists can, can flow with their social justice concept. Thoughts? No, absolutely. But now I play my European card. I'm British, uh, Irish originally. My family knew and supported William Wilberforce and all that generation. So for me, evangelicals were in the forefront of abolition, prison reform, and a hundred other things together. Whereas over here, because of the South, evangelicals have a bad conscience and they have no idea of the evangelical historical tradition of being, we don't have blood on our hands mm-hmm. as evangelicals. We don't have pogroms like the Orthodox or an inquisition or anything like crusades. We don't have that. And yet evangelicals here are confused about their identity and riddled with some sort of a guilt and they're not standing up for what's the greatest of our tradition. So we um, we only know our Dabney Thornwell version, <laughs> which makes us feel guilty. We don't know our Wilberforce Clapham sect, I say affectionately, version. We're not aware of that history. So evangelicalism gets thrown out as a baby with the bathwater. Tragic. Whereas, you know, I mean, when Francis of Assisi tried to live as Jesus lived, the Pope pronounced he was evangelical. Hmm. In other words, evangelicals are people who want to live, think, act as close to Jesus and reflect the good news, releasing the prisoner, etc., etc. You know, Isaiah 61, Luke 4. The idea that we should give that up because some Christians are stained with mega hats is, is absurd. We need to Reformation revival again. And you gave a speech to that effect recently, I think, where you basically said, no, I am not giving up the word evangelical. There's no good reason to. 
no, I'm unashamed evangelical. Depends how you define it. Not politically, not culturally, theologically. Well, I have a friend who likes a, a priest who likes to make the distinction between evangelicals and evangelicals. <laughs> so, uh, in some, so evangelicals are maybe you know people who with Confederate flags, and evangelicals are people who read about Wilberforce and say, "How can I do that in my generation?" It's kind of a funny little distinction, um, you know, based on a vow. Well, as a British evangelical, I say "ev" with a short "e" <laughs> because our enemies can play up. Even, you know, you can make it sound absolutely absurd just the way you say it. Hmm. So well, Southern accent. Yes. So th- it, this it's really interesting. You talk about the Southern thing. We kind of loop back now. Magna Carta of Humanity is the Exodus, the book of Shemot, right? Names. That's interesting. The book of Exodus is named names. So talk about individuality, the assertion of the individual is that what we see in the American South, what you see a lot of Athens, Sparta, and that's that's fine. You can name your city whatever you want. But the argument for the slavery apologist was generally not the curse of Ham. It was Aristotle. So in some sense, the split in evangelicalism um, over slavery is to some degree, whether we're Exodus evangelicals, or whether we're Aristotelian evangelicals who use Thornwell and Dabney's doctrine of the spirituality of the church. The church is only spiritual. It doesn't get involved socially. Um, And that if it had been more Hebraic rather than so Aristotelian, we wouldn't have had that justification for slavery. What do you think about that? Well, you know that period better than I do. It makes good sense to me. The tragedy always is that conservative religion can be used and abused for cultures under stress. So my family comes from Dublin, but you take, say, Belfast and Ulster. The ugliness of Protestant orange theology abused for a culture under stress was appalling, or South Africa or the American South. Now, I think we need to remember that the Christian faith is conservative, Yes. But it's also progressive in a real sense of the word. Yes. And we are both, and we can't just be pinned down as one or the other. In other words, humans, as God created us, we've got this incredible capacity for memory and therefore history going back centuries. And we can have a capacity for imagination and thinking about the future. And so our Lord is the Lord of the past and the future. Alpha and and Omega. We should be too. So... We want to conserve the best of the past and not get stuck there. But there are ideals not yet fulfilled, and we're striving for them, knowing that the greatest of them will only come when the Messiah himself comes. But we are both conservative and progressive, and we mustn't be typecast as only one. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Aleph and the Tav. He's the beginning and the end. Um, he's 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 the second Adam which rolls into himself all of the best of the first Adam and then adds the new things that must be added. And we have to be that or America is sunk. Absolutely. And the Magna Carta of humanity, Sine's revolutionary faith and the future of freedom 
is a great place for anyone. Somebody's listening and they're thinking, I kind of get it. I don't entirely get it. They're reaching a little because like you say, you don't hear this on radio, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you want to, this, this is your starter. Uh, Magna Carta of Humanity is your portal into the world of understanding how the Hebraic worldview applies to modern battles between tyranny and freedom. And I hope people will read it uh, in order to get into that wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you, Jerry. And before we go, I want to make sure there's nothing that you want to add or something that I didn't cover that you think, you know what, I was hoping this Boyer fellow would ask me about such and such. Anything that, anything left on the table that you want to say before we... There's so much more we could say for another hour, but uh, we've covered a lot of things and I hope made people think because... You know, growing up in China under the Chinese Revolution, I've always had an incredible sense of time, urgency, kairos. And clearly, you know, I wrote a book some years ago called The American Hour. But it's much later. We came to live here in 1984 in the Reagan election. And you remember his slogan was morning in America. And I had a lecture then saying this is not the morning. This is late afternoon. And now it's truly close to midnight. In other words, we're in a very, very key moment. So Christians need to wake up and make sure it's the gospel we're defending and the full range of scripture. And if we do that, we're the ones with hope and good news. Whatever the consequences. Absolutely. I mean, and and if they they cancel us, then they cancel us. But at least give them something worth canceling us over Absolutely. and then leave the outcomes to God. Mm-hmm. All right. Oz Guinness, author of The Magna Carta of Humanity, new edition of The Dust of Death, Carpe Diem, Redeemed, and a couple of dozen other books. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Jerry. Keep on. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.